for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shekaniah, the son of Era, and his son uh, Jehonan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported many uh, reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. He may be seated. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on this today. Lord, you've given us an opportunity. Lord, that I pray we not take for granted. We've come here on a Sunday morning. We've gathered together. We've sung praises to your name, Lord, and we come now to look at your word. May you remind us that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, may you remind us how weak we are and how much we need you. May our hearts be stilled, ready to hear, and the words that I speak be pleasing in your sight, be in accordance with your word, Lord. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. I want to apologize from the get-go. and My brother, Mr. Jimmy, can probably sympathize with me here, but... These words, y'all, if I, if I butcher these words, of course, if I, if I just keep rolling, y'all might not know any difference. And some of you might know much better than me. But either way, praise the Lord for God's word. It's profitable. It's good for us to look at it, even those names. Amen. This morning, though, as we continue through our series in Nehemiah, you may see the title of the message in your bulletin, Hard Pressed But Not Crushed. Hard-pressed, but not crushed. This passage is a big deal. There's a lot of wonderful things going on in the whole book of Nehemiah. But here, in chapter 6, the people of God and Nehemiah himself are hard-pressed, but praise the Lord, they're not crushed. That comes from specifically a passage in 2 Corinthians. But as we look at this, and as I've been looking at at it this past week, I was reminded of a hymn, a really, really old, wonderful hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A second verse goes like this. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Or Sabaoth his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. There's a battle going on in Nehemiah chapter 6. A battle that we must take into account and then see where we are in relation to that battle as well. But even as I make mention of this hymn, who can sing such a song when enemies are all around us? Imagine being on a battlefield in the midst of terrible warfare. Enemies on either side, on either flank, even trying to come around from behind you. And then somehow in the middle of fighting, you're able to sing words like this. You would seem almost insane. Because from your vantage point, your brothers beside you, all you would see is the 
the parent reality that you're about to lose and even lose your life. And if that's how we consider where we are on this side of heaven, we're just simply surrounded and there's no, there's nothing to hold on to. We are sorely mistaken because that is not the reality that the Bible testifies to. And so if we are opposed on every side, how can we fight, let alone build? Because that's what Nehemiah was doing. You may remember Ephesians chapter 2 when we went through that series. If you remember the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead under trespasses and sins, it says. But more than that, we are also hemmed in on every single side. This is Nehemiah, hemmed in on every single side. And so we turn our attention here this morning away from the opposition to God who tasked us with our mission. We turn away from that opposition and we face well, we face work that we have to do. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. See, we face opposition to God's work with our focus on God's glory. That's what I want to chase this morning. We don't let one another forget our God. In other words, simply put, this is a summary of the whole message that I hope we can, we can get today. Stay on your wall because your God goes before you. Now the question is, there's kind of two questions to this truth. Say, preacher, that's great, but how and why? Because it's a lot harder, well, it's a lot harder than we may first think. But let me ask you this as we kind of move on into it, though. How's your spiritual vision? Now, when I ask that question, we say, well, that sure does sound like a preachery question, doesn't it? How's your spiritual vision? What do you even mean by that? Let's put it a different way. Are you looking through a glass darkly, as C.S. Lewis once said? Can you see how God is moving? Do you see God's work? Have you noticed his way? Can you see past the opposition to his glory, in other words? And when I say opposition this morning, please don't think it's just opposition to you. Because we all have opposition, don't we? Get up and go to work tomorrow morning, you're going to find opposition somewhere, aren't you? You may find it when you go to lunch after church service. And I'm talking about opposition to God. Nehemiah could see past the opposition, and so did Elisha. In fact, in 2 Kings 6, 17, it says this, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I love that story. And if you know some of your Bible stories, there were some enemies on the horizon. Elisha was there with a friend of his, right? Elisha could see way past just the enemies that were at hand. Could see these chariots on the hillside. His friend there couldn't see it at all. So the question that comes to us is, what do we do? What do we do as believers? What do we do as a church? What do we get from Nehemiah here? And the first thing I want you to notice, again, I got three points just like last week, is this, expect opposition to God's work. Expect opposition to God's work. And we see this in verses 1 through 14. Notice what happens here in verse 1, chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and that there was no breach left in it, 
although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. So in other words, it was just about fixing to be done. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together. And y'all, I'm going to butcher this word so bad. Hakafirim, I believe is at least close to how you say it, in the plain of Anno. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? So pause there for a minute and see what's going on here. Well, let's also see where we are. So I said, expect opposition to God's work. We see opposition here facing Nehemiah. Let me ask you this. If God goes before us, if God goes before us, and we do believe this, will this work be easy? No, that would be a fool's errand, a fool's thought, wouldn't it? If God does go before us, will there be no spiritual warfare? Will everything be butterflies, rainbows, and meadows in the life of a Christian, in the life of a church, in the life of believers in this side of heaven? No, it's not. The Bible does not teach that when you get saved or when you call yourself a Christian, that ever, all of a sudden everything is going to become perfect in your life. In fact, sometimes the very opposite may be true and it's maybe true in some regards, that when you commit your life to Christ, you may see more opposition than you have ever seen in your entire life because you've committed your life to Christ, not just as your friend, but as Lord. And though he takes care of all the things in here, all of a sudden things are coming out you never imagined. It's much the same going on here with Nehemiah. What are the enemies that we face, though? What are the enemies that Nehemiah faces? Well, there's at least three categories here that Nehemiah faces. I want to look at those in turn. And we can see them again in verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, that there was no breach in it. So we've got a little bit of a list here from the get-go, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And you can see these guys, just like the three musketeers, although opposite, they weren't good guys, getting around, doing their crony thing, saying, look at what Nehemiah's doing. And if you remember back, there, there was opposition before in these chapters too, right? Chapter 4, verse 1, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and jeered at the Jews. Last time we looked at that, we used the illustration of the lunch table stuff going on back in high school, right? You got your groups here and your groups here, and you always had the bullies somewhere. Look at what those guys are doing. That's what you got going on here. Although the stakes are a lot higher. So the first thing when it comes to the enemies that Nehemiah faces, the enemies that we face when we're building to God's glory is this. He faced fake friends. He faced fake friends. Notice how it is that they start to talk to him. Verse 3, And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. They wanted him to come on and have a little chit-chat and a visit with them. Okay, Nehemiah, if you've been with us, you've heard this story, what's going on. But we're at a point where it's actually taking place. 
And essentially what happens is they're like, you know what, Nehemiah, we see that things are going good for you. We see that you're accomplishing stuff. We see that your God's behind you. you you're almost done rebuilding this wall. Let's just kind of get a little chummy here and, and have a little chit-chat. Maybe you're not quite as much of an enemy as we thought. But Nehemiah is not foolish. In other words, it's come on and get off your wall. Get away from the work that God has called you to so that you can get some attention from us. What I want to do here, I want to draw a line between what we see here in Jesus. Because all of the scripture points to Christ. He is a fulfillment of all things. The beginning of Hebrews in chapter 1 says that at one time God spoke to us through the prophets. Now he's spoken to us through Jesus Christ, his son. Everything goes that direction. Matthew 27, 40 says this, it's saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. The work that Nehemiah had in front of him was a mighty work, but it did not, it was not even quite the work that was accomplished at the cross that Christ had before him. And it's amazing the parallel you start to see. Come on, Jesus, come down from the cross. If you're the Son of God. Why do you have to finish this work? Come down. That will show me who you really are, Nehemiah, Jesus. So the first thing that we see is that part of the opposition to God's glory, the opposition to his work, are fake friends, those who attempt to, to distract from the mission, to distract from his glory. Second thing I want you to notice is a bit of slander. Specifically, let's call it subversive slander. Notice what happens. He, they keep talking to Nehemiah and say, oh, come on, in fact, they sent to him five times, come on, Nehemiah, come on, Nehemiah, come on, Nehemiah. Verse 4, and they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them the same manner. Verse 5, in the same way, Samballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem and saying this, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. So in other words, it wasn't enough to try to get buddy-buddy with Nehemiah. They threw out an accusation. Said, you know what you're trying to do, Nehemiah? You're trying to rebel against the king. You're trying to take power. That's what you're trying to do. And if you don't come and talk with us, that's what we're going to tell everyone else that's going on. In other words, this is what we're going to try to communicate to everybody. You're not who we thought you were, Nehemiah. You said you're rebuilding to God's glory. We're going to put out that you're actually just after your own gain. It's amazing how he responds to this too. Verse 8, then I sent to him, and he's a, Nehemiah is a, is a persistent dude, y'all. Five times. He's like, look, leave me alone. I'm doing something here. But he said, 
And verse 8, no such thing as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. In other words, you're crazy, guys. This came from nothing I've done just out of you and your ill intent. Matthew 27, 37 says this. Again, we go back to Jesus. And over his head, they put the, the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And if you know who Christ is this morning, you know he's more than just that. He is Lord of all, the firstborn of creation. King of the Jews is a slander, but that's what they threw at him. You just want to rule, Jesus. He said, I want to do more than that, for my kingdom is not of this world. And he came to usher in a kingdom that no one could see unless they trusted in him and followed him in faith. In other words, it was, come on, Jesus, you're just trying to take over. Come on, Nehemiah, you're just trying to take over. And so we've got fake friends, subversive slander, and the last thing is an internal compromise here. And notice how he responds, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. See, their concern was specifically that God not be glorified in what he had called Nehemiah to do. But Nehemiah responded, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. I love this guy. He faces opposition Five times, and this isn't. This is just five times in this particular situation. If you read the chapters before this, on and on and on and on and on, he doesn't come back and go, "Oh, okay, fine. I'm just tired of this." He goes, "You know what? I'm digging my heels in. If you want to keep pushing, you're just going to keep pushing me in the direction that God's got me going." But notice what happens next. Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was con confined to his home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, Nehemiah. They are coming to kill you by night. And if you stop here for a moment, okay, this sounds, sounds okay. Maybe it's a smart thing to do, right? I'm trying to help out Nehemiah. What did he say? What I said... Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? You just can't break this guy. He says, And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but had pronounced, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him to do this. In other words, Tobias, Sanballat, and Geshem were trying to set up a situation to compromise Nehemiah and say, see, we're not who, you're not who we thought you were, are you? And as Nehemiah was in this situation, he said, now hold on a second, this doesn't make any sense. But more than that, they wanted him, it to be said of him, and you won't be who God thought you were either, Nehemiah. If we go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, and we read this, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones 
become loaves of bread. Come on, Jesus, show your power. Do this. Come on, Nehemiah, show us who you really are. See, we must expect opposition to actually building to God's glory. And it ends up being as simple as this. If we want to do church here according to God's word, a New Vision Baptist Church, we can expect opposition. And I don't mean opposition here in our context here in America, but people coming down the road here and telling us to shut our doors. That's not the kind of opposition I'm talking about. We need to realize where we are and where we're not. There are brothers and sisters in China and such that face such things. That's not where we are yet here today. Most often what we face here today is just things simply in the form of shame. Or do you really believe that? That's not practical, Pastor. That's not practical, JP. But don't you know this is who God actually is? Now hold on a second. What does his word say about it? We oftentimes expect opposition. We said this before. We, we expect opposition to the work that God is doing. And understand this. God is always going before us accomplishing a work. It's whether or not we notice it, whether or not we see it, and what side of the work we're going to be on. But we most often expect opposition to that work to walk in with a sign and saying, Hey, guess what, guys? Here I am. I'm the one that doesn't want things to go well for you. And because we have those expectations, we walk around being naive and surprised. But the enemy, the flesh, and the world work in mysterious, subversive ways, which means the only way, rather the best way to combat opposition to God's work is to know his word. Because when you know his word, you know his son, and you know him. When you know him, you know how he's moving. So expect opposition to God's work. But how can we get this work done, get his work done, if we aren't God? And that may be the question you're, you're asking. Okay, great. There's all this opposition, JP. How are we actually going to do this if there's all this opposition? Shouldn't we fear losing? Now, make this point. If you are here this morning in a church on a Sunday morning, right, there's a part of you that expects God to do something. Otherwise, we would be crazy, wouldn't we? Now, maybe some of us are, but you don't have to say amen to that, right? There's a part of us, each one of us here, that knows a little bit of who God is. That he is the creator, that he is all powerful, that he is all holy, that he does not change. I want to take that little part of you. I want us to go there. I want to expand that. Maybe beyond what you've ever witnessed before. And show you this. The second thing is that we need to expect the completion of God's work. Simply from verse 15. And I love, I love how the author just simply writes Nehemiah through here. You have all this opposition, and then notice what he says next. Well, let's finish up a few of these verses, though. 
Verse 13, for this purpose he was hired so that I would be afraid and act in this way in sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. That's what we just looked at. Remember Tobiah and Samballot. Oh my God, now he's praying here. According to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. They wanted to make him fearful. And what's he say after this? So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month. All this opposition, it's as simple as this. Cool guys, you tried to thwart it. The wall got done. The rebuilding didn't stop. Because when we read something like this, say, but I'm not Nehemiah, JP. How can I go about doing what God has called me to do in my life? What he has said in my heart. And also understand this. There is a mission, there is a wall to rebuild that we have as a church. We're given that mission in Acts 2, 42 through 47, and also in Matthew 28, to make disciples as we go. But he's also set things on each one of your hearts in the context in you live, in your families, in your friends, in your workplace, for you to accomplish to his glory. Every single one of you. Otherwise, what are you doing here? And in those things he has set on your heart, you may be saying, I'm just not cut out for this. To which I would say, of course you're not. Why did you think you are? That's not the problem, whether you're cut out for it. Do you think Nehemiah was just cut out for it? What kept him going was not whether or not he was cut out for it, but the fact that he served the God of the Bible that went before him. And the same is true for you. It's not a question of whether or not you're cut out for it. It's the reality that you serve the same God as Nehemiah. The same God that went before Nehemiah is the same God that goes before you. And so as you see this opposition, I encourage you to look past the opposition up to the hillside and take note of the chariots and the angels and the work that God is doing to get you where you already are. It's such a temptation of the enemy and the flesh as well to say, look at what trouble I've stirred up right in front of you. See, this is what I want you to focus on. Doesn't it seem impossible? To which we go back to the cross. Now I want you to picture this. Can you imagine standing before the cross as Christ hung there? Not having the mind, not having the understanding that he had. And what you saw was this man that you've been following for however long, hanging up there, having to push up from nails in his ankles just to breathe every time. Watching blood spill out pour down his head from the crown of thorns that had been shoved into his skull. And on either side of him was someone who truly did deserve where they were. And you're wondering, what is going on and why is he there? I don't see a way forward. But faith in the God of the Bible looks beyond what you see immediately at that cross and recognizes what he said. Three days and I will rise. Do you have that kind of vision? It's a gospel 
sight. We should expect the completion of God's work because guess what happened? He hung on that cross, took payment for our sins, went to the grave. And what happened next? He walked out of the grave beyond our comprehension of how that, that could even be. To the surprise of the disciples, even the ones that were closest to him. And so the question that hits us is, how faithless are we? If we believe that Christ is the Son of God, if we testify to who God truly is, do we not expect the completion of his work in whatever context it is that he's working? It will be done. See, Peter had the same dilemma. Matthew 16, 15 through 18, he says this, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell. Notice what it says. It didn't say might prevail against. And it's not about that it's Peter and not John. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock that Christ built his church on was not Peter himself, but the gospel that Christ accomplished that Peter believed. And so the issue we face is not that we aren't the people in the Bible. We aren't Nehemiah. We aren't David. We aren't Jacob. We aren't Moses. We aren't Abraham. We can go on and on and on. We aren't the disciples. Our issue is whether we believe the same God goes before us. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-10 says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying the body of death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Do we not believe that this is true? The Bible also says, Every tongue will confess. See, and that's the case. We usually, we believe in the promises of God, but we skip over them. We get used to them, don't we? Oh, I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins. How amazing is that? That he actually completed his work that he promised all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. That serpent's head will be crushed. And it was. And so I ask you, do you know what your wall is today? Or a better question, let's ask this. Do you know what God's wall is in your life? There's an amazing connection all the way through the scriptures. And over in Ephesians 2 at the very end, we, of course, we looked at Ephesians a while back. After... Paul talks about how wonderful it is that God intervened. and that He uses that wonderful phrase, but God. At the very end of the passage, he talks about the future, so to speak. And he says, or not the very end of that passage, but in, in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
as you're trying to live your life relying on you to rebuild all of whatever wall he set before you, you need to reassess and remember and take a moment to look heavenward and start looking inward. That is the only way. But if his work and will is done, what can we expect in us and others? The last thing I want you to notice is the reaction to all of this. And it is true of us, we should expect a reaction to God's work. There was a reaction in God's work on the cross. There was a reaction in God's work here in Nehemiah after the wall was built. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. This is the kind of thing that makes you walk out in awe and just absolutely amazed but with the kind of strength that's otherworldly and not in ourselves. So what's the response to his glory? Notice after verse 15, verse 16. When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly, or fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. I love that. See, the, one of the responses, at least the first response to this work being done, which glorified God, in other words, a response to God's glory was deflation from the other people. They saw what he had done, looked back at themselves, and just went. We know what that feels like, right? Most of the time when we experience deflation, though, it's not the kind of deflation we want. Someone out, someone shows you up, right? Whatever context it may be. For me, it was probably, it was normally back when I tried to play basketball, being 5'7". Just got showed up all the time. Didn't work out too well. See, that's not the kind of deflation we're talking about here. Because it's not about me accomplishing something. It's about what God did. And so they should feel deflated. That's one response that we can expect out of other people when God is glorified and is when, when his work is accomplished. But look in verse 17 that continues, verse 17 through 19. This may seem like it doesn't make any sense here, what he's getting at, why is he mentioning this, but it, it fits. Moreover, in those days the noble, nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, Tobiah, because he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, And his son, Jehonanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam and the son of Barakai as his wife. In other words, he's making a family connection here as to why Tobiah had such influence and felt like he could make that pull on Nehemiah. 19, though, also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and I reported my words to him, and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, before we get to Nehemiah, I want you to notice all this connection here. that Nehemiah is making, we see that, that they weren't just deflated, but Tobiah was frustrated. In other words, we can say this, that 
When God's work is accomplished God's way, which is the thrust of this whole path, this whole book, God's work being done God's way, he will be glorified and people will be deflated and even frustrated at God doing his work. Have you ever noticed or watched, and this is a small example, but I think it's a tangible one. Maybe you've watched a friend get saved. Maybe you've been saved. Some of your friends are absolutely ecstatic about it. And it's like it doesn't even go away. They're just continually excited. Dude, that's awesome that you finally see Jesus for who the Bible says he is. And then you got your others. You may not see him for a while, but you go back and you see him and you're like, man, I got to tell you about what happened to me. Like it totally changed my world. I'm not talking about some Jesus freak stuff. It's just, it's simple, man. And you start telling what actually happened in your life and they, they're not excited like the other folks, are they? They may be kind of excited because you're like, okay, I'm glad you're happy. That's wonderful. But you mean you go to church like most Sundays of the year? You mean you actually like read your Bible in the regular and you believe what it says? You don't just read it as like an encouraging thing, like get your verses randomly here and there? You mean you actually take this stuff seriously? And they can't believe that you, who you were, would, this would actually happen to you. And they're not excited. They're actually deflated at what God has done in your life. They're frustrated because what God is seemingly accomplishing even through you already. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. And oftentimes, I don't think I'll get into trouble for saying this, but I think this is, a, this is just a, a bit of wisdom. Oftentimes, when we find ourselves in that situation, we begin to get deflated because we expect everyone to be happy that God's glorified. But when we have the proper expectations, when someone says, you know what, I don't like that, we can say, just like Nehemiah, that's fine. It's not about you. It's about him. I'd be glad to tell you about him if you want to hear them. And if they don't want to listen, you keep going on your merry way. Because God's work does not stop. Here's a last response, though. Here's what we want our response to be. And this is one of the favorite parts of this passage, at least, and then we'll close. You got all this stuff going on, this frustration, this, this anger from Tobiah and Sanballat. It's an interesting story here that we've got, but it's more than a story. It's real. I want you to notice how Nehemiah responds after we, all we, that we said about Tobiah and everything. Notice verse 1 of chapter 7. Let me just ask you this, though. What do you expect Nehemiah to do after all this has taken place? I don't know. I don't really know either. Whatever it is, it's not what you see next, and it's even comical. It just simply says, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. He goes on and on and on. I love that first phrase, though. Now when the wall had been built. In other words, what, what seems to be communicated from this passage, you got all this stuff going on. It seems like such a big deal. And Nehemiah's like, he says in the last verse, and Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. But now when the wall had been built, he was like, I do not care at all. 
It's laughable. And it's laughable, here's why. Because it's who God is. Remember the psalm that testifies? He laughed. God, God laughs at the nations as they rage. It's laughable because they assume they are more powerful, more almighty than the God who went before Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is so confident in his God that when he hears all this, he just goes, well, I just kept building. <laughs> Where are we in our own Christian lives compared to Nehemiah? Do we laugh when others get frustrated at the work that God's doing and say, <laughs> you can be frustrated all you want, but God's going to do his will. Do we make all the opposition about us and not about opposition to his glory and get confused and get distracted from rebuilding the wall? Maybe it's time to get back to work. Maybe it's time to reassess. But let me ask you this, on which side of his work do you stand? On which side of his glory do you stand? On which side on which side of the tomb do you stand? Because you better believe later on when you go if you go get some Mexican food, if you go to Livingston's, if you go to Omar's, and you walk in and you're going to see people, <laughs> that there's going to be some people walking around that are dead. We ought not be naive and think that everyone walking around alive is fully alive and knows this God that we speak of this morning. But before we get to reaching out to others, where do you stand today? Are you still in that tomb dead Or can you say, look at the work he's done in me? And so what's the foundation for all these things? It's the promises of God. If you look forward to what happened in the Bible, right, God's redemptive work was done. Revelation 21, and all will praise him, right? Every knee will bow. Before that, the marriage supper of the Lamb will come, and it will be done. So part of the foundation for all these things is looking forward to the redemptive work that Christ has done and will do. Everything will come to fruition that was promised. But it's also simply this, is knowing your God. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, what was it that he's... All this is connected. What was it that Nehemiah spoke of his God? He said in verse 5, And I said, O Lord, as he prayed, the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Nehemiah knew how wonderful his God is. Do you? Or have you forgotten who it is that you worship? The last two verses of Mighty Fortress is our God goes like this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. 
that word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. And the last few lines. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So have you seen God's glory? Have you seen, like Elisha, God's angel armies? Do not lose sight of him this morning. In other words, as we stated earlier, stay on your wall because your God goes before you. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light unto our path. I pray that you would, Lord, help us in not just leaving what we've looked at here, but taking it with us, chewing on it, applying it, living it out, Lord. And however you may be calling us here in this room, I pray that we would take note of it, Lord, that we wouldn't ignore it, that we wouldn't resist. Whether it's the call to salvation or the call to get to work in a particular way in our lives, the call to do things, Lord, that you have set on our hearts. Help us to understand how it is that you're working, Lord, and to remember always that you go before us. Father, you are before us and behind us, and you are our good shepherd. And we thank you and your praise you for these things. In your son's name, amen. Mm-hmm.